0: We call this Joy Sunday, and not just because of the crazy sweaters and ties we see out there. During Advent, we've been reflecting on the middle part of this Bible called the Prophecy of Isaiah. It's a prophecy about how God will save His chosen people, Israel, and the whole world through the Messiah. If you're feeling beat up by life, this is a great Sunday to be here we're going to trace the path God used to bring joy to his people in ages past in their suffering and how God still brings joy to suffering people like us. The promises of Isaiah correlate with these four candles of hope, peace, love, and joy. On the first Sunday of Advent, we learned that hope is not just wishful thinking, it's more like a... Confident assurance that we can claim a promise that is absolutely reliable. Then we learned that peace, or shalom as the Jewish people called it, isn't just the cessation of hostilities, but the restoration of all things just as God predestined them to be. And last Sunday we saw that love means the unconditional commitment God has made to those he created and redeemed It's a love that lasts forever in spite of everything. All these blessings are based on God's everlasting covenant with his people. And that is why, irresistibly, inevitably, the whole world will be filled with joy. Let's hear the word of God from Isaiah chapter 9. I'm starting the reading a little before the part we normally hear at Christmas. The people who walked in darkness... Have seen a great light, those who dwell in a land of deep darkness. On them light has shined. You've given us joy. We rejoice before you, for the yoke of our burden, the rod of our oppressor, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Did you notice something peculiar about this text? The part we always hear at Christmas is a magnificent promise of salvation and joy. But it doesn't sound like the people Isaiah was addressing here are about to have themselves a merry little Christmas. With hearts all merry and light because their troubles will all soon be out of sight. Before church this morning, someone who is suffering a lot of pain right now said this to me. She said, Real life is not like a Hallmark story. As a matter of fact, during Isaiah's time, the Jews were terrorized by numerous enemies, including the sadistic stormtroopers of Assyria and Babylon. These weren't nice people. They invented siege warfare and crucifixion. In the near future, the Jewish homeland would be devastated, their holy temple destroyed. They're about to be carried off in chains, stripped of dignity. They will wonder if God has forgotten them. The prophecies of Isaiah explain that all this divine judgment has come because of Israel's wickedness. Such calamities, the prophet says, are sent by God, a lover's gift, a severe mercy, like a physician who cuts out a cancerous organ to save your life. The surgery will be painful, but the surgeon wounds in order to heal. According to Isaiah, Israel's idolatry and injustice made him angry and sad. Although God loved his people, he was about to withdraw his protection And allow them to experience total disaster. Recovery programs like AA say that an addict has to hit bottom before he or she is able to receive healing. That's why God used foreign armies to push Jerusalem off her sweet smelling perch into the stinking mess of exile. It was for Israel, it was hard for Israel to appreciate. All this, but God had a purpose in allowing them to suffer. As C.S. Lewis wrote, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts at us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God's people had become deaf, and he was getting their attention. There's a famous saying in the Bible, I'm sure you've heard it, whatever we sow, that's what we'll reap. And it's true. Our foolish choices and selfish actions come back to haunt us. We've scattered thorns and thistles, and now we have noxious weeds overrunning our lives, strangling our families, blighting our nation, and suffocating the world. If you idolize work, work will crush you. If you make money your focus, money will blind you to everything else. If you destroy the environment, the environment will destroy you. If you play with fire by cheating on your spouse, don't be surprised if things blow up. We're told that Adam ate the forbidden fruit and he thereby brought a curse of death down upon himself and his descendants. I may not be able to draw a straight line between my personal actions, And my afflictions. But human suffering in general goes back to Adam and his disastrous choice. Now we're all caught in this sticky web of death. God has set things up to work the way they do, this painful cause and effect, because He wants to get our attention to help us realize we need Him. This doesn't mean that every time we suffer, it's directly related to something we've done wrong, but it often means that. And when we get laid low by the boomerang of sin, we're ready for God's grace. That's what the Jewish nation learned. It's what each of us must learn. According to an ancient Jewish proverb, it's not within our power to implant the divine teachings in someone else's heart. All we can do is place them on the surface so that when the heart breaks, they will drop in. A similar idea was expressed by Augustine, an early Christian bishop, who said, The best disposition for praying is that of being desolate, forsaken, stripped of everything. According to Tim Keller, God uses suffering to implant the divine wisdom. Suffering transforms our attitude toward ourselves, it kills pride, shows us how fragile we are, it reorients our values. We see that we have put too much weight on temporary things instead of eternal things. Suffering drives us to seek God. But please remember this. If we reap what we sow, it's not because God hates us. It's because he loves us. Suffering is the God-ordained path to real joy. Even in the midst of calamity, God had a glorious purpose for Israel... The fiery ordeal was meant not to destroy, but to rehabilitate. What felt like hell was the way to heaven. Suffering was catalyst for salvation and judgment prerequisite to joy. Israel's painful judgment was never meant to be final. God had made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. And I'm going to read part of that covenant from Genesis 12. And, thir- and 17 he said I will bless you so you will be a blessing in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring forever that's what God said and his blessing wasn't just for Abraham's family but for the whole world We call God's covenant unconditional because all the promises were on God's side. There were no conditions on Abraham's side. God says, I will be yours and you will be mine forever. The promise is unilateral and irrevocable. Now, Isaiah develops a vivid metaphor to show how God's unbreakable covenant would transcend Israel's failure. Here's the metaphor. A young wife abandons her husband for another lover, and divorce is inevitable. But the heartbroken husband still longs for his bride and remembers the promise he made to her. Of course, Israel is the wife God promised to love forever when he delivered her from the bondage of Egypt. But she spurns the vows she made to God to have no other gods but him. She falls head over heels for pagan idols. And God reluctantly lets the new lover enslave her. Still, God says to Israel, Fear not, for you will forget the shame of your youth. Because your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. For a brief moment I let you go, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I have hid my face from you, but... With everlasting love, I have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And so, because God's everlasting covenant with Abraham, Israel's unfaithfulness isn't the last word. Their suffering isn't the last word either. The last word is joy. When the estranged wife gets a second chance, the last word is joy. When Israel finds that God is with them in their captivity, the last word is joy. God won't forget his chosen people. That's why even as God threatens Israel with catastrophe, he can promise them ultimate salvation. In God's covenant, the last word is always joy. Now, I'm going to read to you some other uh, verses from Isaiah. Isaiah. To give you a flavor for this joy that God promised his people. You will say in that day, I give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, the Lord God is my strength and my song, he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the well of salvation. Say to those who are anxious in heart, Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come and save you. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Sing for joy, O heavens, exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for God has comforted his people and will have compassion. On the afflicted. Pay attention to this surprising truth. The joy God gives is not based on the absence of suffering. This joy comes in the midst of suffering. What Isaiah calls the joy of salvation is not based on the ups and downs of life, but solely on God's unbreakable promise to never leave or forsake us. Joy is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. The Bible highlights this unexpected connection between suffering and joy. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings. I consider the sufferings of the present time not worth comparing with the joy that will be revealed to us So in paradoxical wisdom, God uses suffering to deepen our joyous relationship with him. Eventually, the Jews were set free from exile. The prophets assured them their punishment was complete. They went back to Palestine around 500 B.C. They rebuilt the city and the temple. But the ultimate shalom, the peace foreseen by Isaiah, the complete healing of all the world's ills, was still future. And so was the ultimate joy. When God sent his son, angels came down to sing about the salvation breaking into the world because of one baby lying in a manger. Here's what the angels told the shepherds. Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. It sounds somewhat like Abraham's covenant in the prophecies of Isaiah. And it goes on. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The king who brings ultimate hope, peace, and love and joy was born that Christmas day. Earlier I said that if you're feeling beat up by life, you've come to the right place. Let's say more about that. Isaiah prophesied that God's Messiah would come as a suffering servant. Handel's great oratorio called the Messiah is often sung at Christmas. In fact, one of my favorite memories of Christmas, going back to high school days, is singing that wonderful piece of music with a choir and feeling so close to God, hearing words like this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. With his stripes we are healed. Jesus links his own suffering to the prophecies of Isaiah. Jesus said he came to suffer with us and give his life as a ransom for us. He did not come to free us from suffering in this life, but to ensure that our suffering is redemptive and infuse our suffering with joy. Jesus reaffirmed God's everlasting covenant with Abraham. And just as the covenant with Abraham was meant to embrace all nations, Jesus stretched that covenant and said that he came to draw all people into God's kingdom. He says, when I am lifted up from the cross, I will draw all men to myself. At the beginning of John's Gospel, Jesus went to a wedding and changed water to wine. Now, it's a bad omen to run out of wine at a Jewish wedding. Here's why the feast goes on for an entire week. And each night, friends and family use wine to toast the married couple with mazel tov and multiple blessings. They say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, sovereign of the universe, who created joy. And gladness, groom and bride, mirth, song, delight and rejoicing, love and harmony, peace and companionship. Now it's pretty clear that Jesus saw these marriage blessings as a symbol of God's unbreakable promise to Abraham, like Isaiah. According to John, this changing of water to wine was the first of seven signs Jesus gave to announce God's love for the world. In this cosmic reconciliation with God, the wine would never run out, the blessings would never cease. Overflowing wine means overflowing joy. And throughout his ministry, Jesus highlighted God's unbreakable covenant with other stories about wedding feasts. He invited his followers to join him in the celebration of a new covenant between God And his estranged bride. In Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Jesus gives a vision of a wedding feast he will celebrate with his people at the end of time. His atoning sacrifice paves the way for the new Jerusalem, redeemed people from every nation, coming down from heaven as God's eternal bride. When I was four years old, my mother taught me to read by guiding me through a children's Bible. This happened 65 years ago. But I have a sweet memory of sitting beside her on the couch in a tiny living room, looking at the pictures, studying the words, and listening to her soft, oaky accent. If you think I talk funny, it's because I still have a little bit of that accent myself. My mother, a newly minted nurse, was the first to tell me God's story about his covenant promises to Abraham and Israel, and, of course, the covenant he confirmed to all of us through Jesus. Then, 30 years ago, the roles got reversed. My mom was a full-time nurse at the VA when she started having strange symptoms, fatigue, nausea, and creeping depression. Finally, she was diagnosed with hepatitis C, traced back to a bedside needle prick. Later, as mom's symptoms got worse... She was diagnosed also with AIDS. You should never hand a dirty syringe to a nurse point first. That's what had happened. My mom was soon confined to a nursing home where she was more or less shunned by everyone. We're talking 1989, the start of the AIDS epidemic, and people were afraid. That's when the roles got reversed. I visited my mom as often as I could. She knew she was dying but didn't know if she was good enough to go to heaven. The one who first read me Bible stories wasn't sure the Bible promise was for her. In my most comforting pastoral tone, I reassured her that she definitely was not good enough. None of us are good enough. But even so, I reminded her God loves us unconditionally, not because of anything we do, whether good or bad. He saves us through the everlasting covenant he made to Abraham and confirmed through Jesus. Before she passed away, Mom was able to grasp this good news of great joy for all people, even her. One day, sitting at her bed, we sang an old hymn. Shall we gather at the river where bright angels' feet have trod, with its crystal tide forever flowing by the throne of God? Yes, we'll gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river. Gather with the saints at the river that flows by the throne of God. By the time we got to the end, we were both crying. Then Mom said, Don't cry, Alan. I'll see you at the river. That's one of the last times I saw my mom in this life. But we were changed for the better by our suffering, and we felt the joy. You probably didn't come to Joy Sunday to hear a message about suffering. But there it is. Both darkness and light belong to God, our covenant God. We can't have one without the other. In the midst of every affliction, as Isaiah says, we shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace and all the trees of the field will clap their hands because God has established an everlasting covenant Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to share our suffering and to redeem our suffering. We thank you for sending him as the Prince of Peace and the author of joy. Lord, we know that today there are people in our congregation who are suffering all kinds of ways. We mourn with the heiress family who lost their beloved Gwen last Wednesday. Lord, we thank you for being here and being with them to speak peace to their hearts and to give them joy in spite of the pain of loss. Lord, we all come with all kinds of pain and suffering and uh, things from our history that haunt us. But God, we give it all to you today. We thank you for using every bit of it and not wasting any ounce of our suffering. Thank you for using it for your glory and for our good that we might be your beloved children now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.